Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to The New Economy. I'm Stephanie Flanders, head of Bloomberg Economics. You can't talk about the new global economy without talking about the future of finance and financial technology. Bankers used to say, complacently, they didn't worry too much about tech startups stealing their business. Once people have real money, the argument ran, they're not going to trust it to an unregulated upstart. They're going to take it to a bank. Then came the global financial crisis, the ultimate own goal for the banks. Suddenly, the idea of trusting someone else to handle your cash didn't sound so crazy after all. A bit later, I'm going to have a chat about the future of money and banking with Bloomberg finance reporter Jennifer Surain and opinion columnist Lionel Laurent. But first, I asked Jenny to tell us how payment apps like Alipay and WeChat Pay are raising the bar for global banks everywhere and making them a bit nervous as well. I'm a journalist. I'm here to meet with Leo. You're here with me here to meet with Leo. What's your name? Jenny. Sorry. Jenny. Is he expecting? I think so. Yeah. That's me, Jenny Serene. I write about banking and payments for Bloomberg News here in New York. And like most New Yorkers, I've noticed the little blue logo with Chinese lettering popping up all over the city, from the iconic luxury store windows on Fifth Avenue, or cash registers at grocery stores and restaurants. It's even been popping up in the back of taxi cabs and at tourist destinations. That's what led me here, to VR World, an entertainment center focused on virtual reality attractions located in midtown Manhattan. For us, when we looked at it and we looked uh, at a lot of the Asian business that we have, we figured Alipay was a natural uh, platform that should be included in, in, in what we accept as the form of payment. That's Leo Simmer. He's the chief executive officer of VR World. Earlier this year, it became one of the first places in New York with that little blue logo when it began accepting the Chinese payment app, Alipay. But customers have been happy that you have it as one of the options. Customers had been very thrilled. Um, I personally had seen Asians that would have American Express, but they would recognize Alipay and they would smile. And it's just another element of making people comfortable. Yeah. Uh, for sure, it worked very well. And mm. we will continue offering Alipay as uh, the business expands across the United States. In China, a shocking amount of money flows through a pair of mobile payment apps. Alibaba Group's Alipay and Tencent Holdings' WeChat Pay. They are actually part of two vast digital ecosystems that blend banking, commerce, and social media. You can shop online, pay street vendors, or send money to friends. Together, they boast more than 1.5 billion monthly active users and have a combined market share of 90% in the mobile payments market. Now, 
Alipay and WeChat are slowly bringing their payment services to the U.S., sparking fear among bankers who are scrambling to revamp many of their core payment offerings. Alibaba's brought it here to kind of really push home the message that this is the new economy, and boy, have the numbers really been quite staggering. Adam, in your view, how far are we away from a cashless society? Well, it depends where you are. If you spend any time in China these days, it may feel like you already are in one. Uh, How big is Ant Financial really becoming now? It, it's all encompassing some of these uh, Chinese uh, payment systems. But you know, talk, talk about the different systems. So how Banks need to make sure that these apps don't sweep through the U.S. like they did in China. So they have started off by rushing out some platforms of their own. So far, a lot of the innovation in the payment space has happened on the consumer side. Think Zelle or one-click checkout on Amazon, or Apple Pay. Now, startups and banks alike are realizing the bigger opportunity lies on the business side of payments. From the bodega down the street to Fortune 100 companies, businesses around the world send $127 trillion in payments every year. Today, we're looking at the money businesses send overseas, known as cross-border payments. This is a tricky, opaque business. Money can't just transfer between banks in different countries. Instead, it gets routed through so-called correspondent banks. And once a company has sent a payment, it often doesn't know when that payment will arrive to its supplier or which banks will handle it along the way, or even how much will be deducted in fees. This is a big business for banks. Analysts at Goldman Sachs estimate that banks around the world reap about $1 trillion of fees from cross-border payments. I spoke about the hassles of using banks to move money with Kristen Michaud. She's the Managing Director of Treasury Operations at General Electric. Sometimes um, I think the assumption is that it's easy, like cash just moves and you have transparency and they relate it to the consumer side. And Unfortunately, the industry hasn't made it there yet. And so kind of a day in the life, um, you might have a supplier calling you up saying they didn't get paid, and then you're spending days working with uh, multiple banking partners to chase down the status of a transaction. Um, so this is a big pain point for multinationals, um, something that, that everybody's been pushing for in the industry with the banks. Kristen is part of a growing chorus of corporate treasurers who are asking banks and startups to come together to improve business-to-business payments. Here's a problem she sometimes has. She sends money to her suppliers, and banks deduct their fees along the way. By the time it arrives, the recipient looks at the amount and isn't sure what it's for. She's been complaining about this for years. The good news? Banks have received the message, loud and clear. If you're sending $100, it might receive at your beneficiary at $95. And then sometimes they'll return it because they don't know how to apply that cash. So actually having the transparency to where those fees are coming out, who's deducting those fees, what the total amount is that receives on the supplier side is huge. This is where an organization called SWIFT comes in. SWIFT operates the messaging system that connects the 10,000 banks around the world. Right now, SWIFT is in the throes of introducing what it's calling its Global Payments Innovation Initiative, or GPI. By 2020... Banks that are a part of the SWIFT network are required to provide transparency about the cross-border payments they send and receive for clients. Correspondent banking has been around for a long time, and it's done a good job for many years. That's Harry Newman, head of banking at SWIFT. 
but it's, it's obviously a child of the 80s and it lacked the transparency and predictability you'd really want to see in a modern payment mechanism. So Swift and a group of the large banks came together uh, and agreed it was really time to modernize the service. But what's perhaps most interesting about Swift's new efforts is who's leading the charge. Chinese banks. They need a way to fend off the apps taking over their business. Chinese banks are, are indeed some of the most uh, enthusiastic about joining GPI. And they see it as a, um, a means to adapt to, a, to an international payment infrastructure. And I think a lot of that is to do with the, the presence of new entrants in China and, and in that area of the world. Asia is adopting new technology and sometimes leaping uh, a generation of technology in what it's doing. Uh, Chinese banks see as an opportunity to approve the ability they have to provide services to their client. So they value the speed and transparency and the ability to integrate it. General Electric's Christian Michaud feels the same way. Asia Pacific is a huge driver of this change, right? So you would think this is initiative coming out of the United States. Definitely not, right? They're kind of the later adopters. The question for banks is whether they will be able to maintain their hold on payments between companies. Apps and tech companies are showing interest in taking that over. Bankers I spoke to said the fight is just getting started. To learn more, I'm visiting Citigroup's headquarters in downtown Manhattan. I'm here to talk to Manish Kohli, Global Head of Payments and Receivables at Citigroup. Hi, Manish. Hello, Hi. how are you? Jenny, how are you doing? Good to see you. Likewise. Thank you well? so much. I'm sorry I'm so late. No uh, one train Manish says the era of waiting several days or a week for money to move internationally needs to end, and that big U.S. banks like his are working hard to speed things up. He says one problem is that some other banks still sit on the money after they get it. He's trying to spread the word that SWIFT has started to solve that problem with GPI. 50% of payments that move through GPI get paid cross-border in less than 30 minutes. We see that more than 90% of payments that go through SWIFT GPI get credited to the beneficiary within one working day. So, you know, some of the industry myths going around that cross-border payments take 7 days, 5 days, 10 days to pay, actually now, just because you can measure it, you actually see that some of those facts are not true. Some bank will say, well, I take, you know, three hours to process, and I'm starting to see, you know, payment volumes move away from me. I'm going to do it in five seconds or three seconds because I want to be the bank that attracts the maximum amount of payments to come through me. Yeah. So I think those changes are now only starting to happen. So there's hope yet for cross-border payments to improve. And in Manisha's view... It'll be the banks that are leading the charge. It's you know, unique to see the industry galvanized together to do something which is really transformative. So I think that change in mindset of let's collaborate together to improve the industry itself is amazing. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. 
their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So Jenny's joined me in the studio here in New York, and we have Bloomberg columnist Lionel Laurent joining the conversation from London. Um, Lionel, does Alipay really represent anything new or hint at anything new as we were hearing in that piece? I mean, we've seen a lot of new uh, sort of fintech uh, upstarts getting into um, very consumer oriented stuff, but not so much the sort of financial plumbing of the of the global system, things like international payment system. You know, is that something that you actually see happening or is it still very consumer oriented? Yeah, I think I think this is something that is new in terms of the size, the scale, and the kind of innovation on show. I mean, this is this is still a very Chinese uh, phenomenon, right? China is one of these countries that has jumped almost directly from cash, banknotes, uh, into mobile payments. It's sort of skipped a whole generation of tech that we in Europe and the US are still used to in terms of plastic cards and, and checks, and that has allowed actors like Alipay to get of the size and the scale and offer the kind of products that banks very much still you know dominates here here in Europe and and the US so i think that right now firstly the the, the question is how far does it go in china before regulators uh, start getting a bit worried we've, we've already seen a few a few steps towards that and secondly whether they can ex- export this model to the rest of the world which again when when you look at the regulators reception of certain steps made by uh, chinese companies in the rest of the world it's still very cautious so i'd say right now it is definitely new i just think it seems quite unique and maybe you know particular to asia particular to china and it's going to take a longer time for us to see things like this happening in the West. Well, that's a, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in there that I think we could, we could get into dis- discussing. I mean, you, you wrote a great column for Bloomberg uh, a while back talking about how tech firms are behaving like uh, big banks. And, you know, they're doing everything that banks are doing except getting regulated. I mean, is that the you talked about regulators maybe getting concerned? Is it going to be a very different conversation once all of these companies just start being treated like banks? Yeah, it's just still very, very tentative. I mean, if you if, if you look at the picture in, in, in the West, banks still have this incumbent advantage. They they still dominate. And tech companies are they are they are nibbling away. And, you know, if you look at Google and Apple and, and, and Amazon, they have offerings, they are making inroads, but it's still very specific. It's very segmented. It'll be payments offering like like Apple Pay, uh, where your card is re- is replaced by your phone. Or it'll be like Amazon lending to its to its partners, uh, to some of the businesses that you know sell their wares on Amazon. But it's not a full frontal assault, and I and I think for now it is going to remain that way because none of these tech companies wants the hassle of being regulated like a bank. I think the issue for the banks is when does it become a threat to all of the extra revenues, extra businesses on top of it? Because the day that Amazon offers the kind of mutual fund or investment products that Alipay might offer in in China uh, is the day that revenue erosion starts to become real. So I think that, you know, regulators are looking, but there's nothing there yet uh, to really get them to to make some forcible moves. I think we're, we're, we're kind of, you know, making this up as we as we go along. Yeah, and, and and Jenny, you're you're nodding there. I mean, you think that that you know that would be the the, the fundamental shift. Yes, I agree. I think 
to Lionel's point, it hasn't been a full frontal assault so far. We've just seen them kind of nibbling at their heels. But when we see kind of these super apps like Alipay, which does get into some of the mutual fund investing sites, it does have a lending arm and a credit scoring arm. It does have the payments capabilities. That's when you start to wonder, could some of our big tech companies like Amazon or Facebook duplicate that success? Um, And it's hard to say. We haven't seen them try Mm -hmm. yet, but they certainly have the engagement with their customer base that, that could lead you to believe it might be a possibility. You know, I would say I, I used to work at, at, uh, at J.P. Morgan and I, when you would hear Jamie Dimon talk about this and obviously he'd always get asked by clients, you know, aren't you worried that the, all these new companies are going to eat your lunch? You know, they're going to get rid of this. And he had sort of two sources of complacency, I would say, whether that was justified or not. He would say there was a generational thing that, you know, the sort of trendy, the sort of consumer oriented stuff that people might want in their 20s. Once they had serious money, his view was that they would want the money in the bank and that they would have that advantage on that. Um, and then the other point, which has come up in what we said before, he would say, look, it's, you know, it's all very well. These consumer-facing stuff is fine. But by the way, we're still doing all of the underlying. We're still responsible for that underlying payment system. We're actually processing stuff for all of these companies. I'd be interested what both of you think on those sort of sources of reassurance that the big banks have had to date, you know, whether it's a, the generational change, which could be temporary, and the point about the underlying infrastructure being something that people didn't want to get into. Maybe, Jenny, first? I mean, I think um, the idea that the banks will will long be the pipes of finance, that's probably certainly true. That's a really hard technology and capability to replicate. But is that what they really want? I mean, that essentially makes them a commodity in many ways. There's no longer, if a consumer has affinity for Amazon instead of Chase, Chase can't charge the fees that it charges today. It's a completely different business model. So I probably agree that it's tough to replicate and fintechs don't really want to get into like the pipes and boring parts of banking. But I think that there's something to be said for having that consumer facing capability and maintaining that kind of top of mind place when consumers think finance, they think banks, not Mm. fintech. I mean, Lionel, you were saying the money is really not necessarily in that infrastructure, in the payments. It's in the sort of add on. Would you would you suggest that Jamie Dimon needs to be a bit more concerned? I, yeah, I think I think Jenny's right. I think that this is very similar to the telecom companies' frequent fear that they're going to be dumb pipes, that essentially they're going to have to spend and invest and build the infrastructure, but it's going to be all these other companies that end up skimming the profits off, off the top and, and making money at, at either end. Look, Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan, again, these are unique banks of a very impressive size. The US market has been tougher to crack than, than, than many other markets. It's very concentrated. I'm sure that Mr. Diamond has a lot of good reasons to feel that incumbent advantage. Uh, but there are markets that are a bit more maybe vulnerable, um, UK, Europe, uh, perhaps. And yeah, as Jenny says, <laughs> there are very big tech companies out there who eventually almost by accident could could, could sleepwalk into businesses that Jamie uh, would would not want to give up. So I think there's a, there's a bit of bravado in there. But you know, I'm pretty sure that Jamie Dimon is in a spot that many, frankly, many banks would 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 love to be in, right? Not not just uh, fintech companies. Well, and also I should say before I'm going to get all my colleagues uh, writing me angry emails talking about all the stuff that they're developing. I think they would, they would always have this kind of reassuring face to clients, but under the surface of also you know madly trying to innovate in a lot of these areas. So I wouldn't say that they were uh, completely complacent. That's probably why they have done so well. 
is China actually uh, presenting us with a different kind of model for uh, how a financial sector might develop? Or is it just a feature of its very curious road to development, uh, that it's had this very closed system, very state-led system, and these kind of curious things have developed, have been able to thrive, but wouldn't necessarily present a model for the rest of the world. I mean, how special is China? You know, maybe we, maybe we shouldn't expect the same thing to happen anywhere else. Yeah, I think China is a very unique place. Um, they have kept their uh, system closed off to many of the U.S. companies that would love a crack at China. I think a good example, if you look at Visa and MasterCard, you know, they've long wanted to go to China and bring their technology to that country. But they've been, you know, told very forcefully, no, you cannot come here. And Visa and MasterCard are a part of a system here where, you know, merchants pay interchange every time uh, you swipe your card either online or in store. And that interchange funds credit card rewards, which are beloved by Americans. And so that system alone is one that um, it's a hard consumer habit to break because people are going to go from getting 2% back on every purchase they make to, you know, Alipay doesn't really offer rewards um, beyond just like the speed and convenience of using it. So there's like little, I think, features like that that are really hard to disrupt in the U.S. and that China never had to deal with because they didn't have kind of the legacy infrastructure that um, places like the U.S. have. I mean, I guess you know, just to go back to the, the, this regulation, I mean, I wonder whether we will look back on this era and say it was a very kind of brief moment in, in sort of historical terms where all of these new companies and new entrants, some of them very big, going into sectors, whether it's banking or or media, and enjoying a period where they weren't being treated like banks or like media companies. You know, Facebook's the obvious example. And once regulators, once policymakers kind of catch up to the changing environment, you know, this becomes, you know, the, the, the business model that those companies have becomes something very, very different. I mean, do you think, Lionel, do you think that is... Um, you know, we're heading for a very a, a different and maybe less disruptive environment once regulators kind of get a handle on what's going on. I think it. I think it depends on a couple of things. Firstly, from from the banks' side, you know, banks are lobbying quite heavily for this, as you say, this sort of day in the sun to end. Right? I mean, they want regulators to step in, and they and they want some of these tech companies to be treated in the same way as 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 them. I I, I just wonder whether they are prepared for a fight on on equal territory because if we are heading towards a kind of more open, because. Regulators also care about the consumer. They they care about choice. They care about openness. And you could hardly accuse a lot of these banking markets of being very open. So if the markets get more open and more competitive, and even if you have a level regulatory playing field, banks could still find themselves uh, in a bit of a tough spot where they have to do all these things, you, you know, cross-sell and, and, and sell more products on a, on a technology platform uh, than, than, their, than their, you know, investors or their, or their budget actually is able to, to deliver. So I think that, you know, it, it could simultaneously happen where you get more regulation of these tech companies, but also more more kind of competition and a, and a more difficult fight for the, for the banks as a result. And I would just quickly say that the size of these tech companies, right, I mean, we can barely work out how to tax Amazon and Google. They are so big, potentially, that the day that we do try and get our act together and say, here's how you should treat these as financial actors or as media actors, that will take a lot of cooperation, right? Global regulatory cooperation. And if it's happening at a time when countries are pulling in totally different directions, that could create, again, you know, more kind of loopholes, more chinks in the, in the, in the sort of structure of, of cross-border regulation. 
That's a, it's a great point, actually. And I think that's that's just the kind of thing. I think it's why the, the New Economy Forum is trying to bring together this community of people to think about these issues, because it's clearly going to involve um, more countries and more and a lot of different regulators working together. And we may not get any uh, easy answers, not even with all those people sitting in Singapore uh, for a couple of days. Um, but Jenny, just uh, something that did come out, going back on Lionel's point on, on the competition. I mean, you know, part of the point of Alipay is it is just teaching consumers a different way of dealing uh, with um, financial transactions. And surely that has to have an impact on places like the US that we consider to be oh so sophisticated, but still take far longer than any other place to you know clear a check or to transfer money. I mean, is it on some of those basic things probably the US could do with a bit of competition? I think, uh, so you're certainly right. The US is behind in a lot of areas in terms of money movement. We still have a very large check presence in the U.S. and we still use a lot of cash here. And so certainly competition is you know, a good thing in that sense. I think things like Alipay making their way here or you know, the rise of things like Venmo or Zelle from the banks, it does kind of ratchet up expectations on the consumer side. And then you know, corporates, they send trillions of dollars a year, both in the U.S. and around the world. And that is also an area where money moves really slowly. It's a very opaque area, like we talked about um, in the reporting. But basically, it has this effect of kind of raising everyone's standards. And, and suddenly, banks can no longer sit on their money for two or three days. Um, they have to get it through and, and really address their customers' needs. <laughs> well, OK. Lionel Laurent, Bloomberg Opinion columnist in London, and Jennifer Surain here in New York. Thanks very much for joining me on this. I think we've had a, we've had some a bit of reassurance for the likes of, of Jamie Dimon, but also a uh, you know, massive uh, challenge uh, for global policymakers when it comes to this interaction of, of technology and finance, and you know plenty to be discussed at the New Economy Forum in Singapore. Thanks for listening to the New Economy. Today's episode was reported by Jennifer Surain with editor David Shear. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.